Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Dr. Shibli Telhami, Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development, Director of the University of Maryland's Critical Issues Poll, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Telhami is the author of many highly regarded books and articles on the region. His polls are required reading, and his best-selling book, The Stakes, America and the Middle East, was selected by Foreign Affairs as one of the top five books on the Middle East in 2003. Shibley has advised every U.S. administration from George H.W. Bush to Barack Obama. He was selected by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, along with the New York Times, as one of the great immigrants for 2013. He is also the recipient of the University of Maryland's Honors College 2014 Outstanding Faculty Award and was also selected as a 2018-2019 Distinguished Scholar Teacher. Shibley and I will be talking about what comes next following the ceasefire last week between Hamas and Israel, and whether the Biden administration has now put the Israeli-Palestinian conflict back as the central issue in U.S.-Middle East policy. My conversation with Shibley Tohami begins now. Shibley, welcome to On the Middle East. My pleasure. Let's get into it. President Biden said today, Monday, he is sending U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken to Israel, the West Bank, Egypt, and Jordan. What can we expect from this diplomatic initiative? And is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict back on the agenda as the central issue in U.S. policy in the Middle East? Um, well, Andrew, let's face it. Uh, I mean, uh, when Biden came uh, uh, to the White House, uh, this was not at all on his agenda. And understandably, I, I don't think many people uh, expected that it would be given uh, that he had his hands full with uh, certainly crises at home. Uh, but even in the Middle East, the expectation was that he would focus principally, first and foremost, on the return to the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, an issue that could draw the U.S. into war, uh, and certainly he doesn't want to have that done. And perhaps, um, in a way, because of Israeli opposition on that issue, he also didn't want to open another front with the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu on the issue of Palestine. So that was a definitely not a high-priority issue. Uh, clearly, uh, when there was the eruption in Jerusalem uh, over uh, the Israeli plan to expel Palestinians from their homes in the Jerusalem neighborhood, and then the escalation, including the assault on Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, that generated already quite a bit of pressure on the administration to speak out. And then you had the Hamas rockets coming uh, in from, from uh, Gaza to Israel, followed by uh, extensive bombings uh, in, uh, in Gaza, um, both of uh, which generated uh, enormous um, civilian casualties and destruction, although overwhelmingly um, Palestinian uh, by a ratio of 20 to 1 in terms of deaths alone. Um, that clearly created a 
problem for the president. In a way, it's a problem that Biden did not expect. Um, and I say that because I think Biden personally uh, didn't think the Middle East cared much about Israel-Palestine, including uh, Arab countries. And clearly, after the Abraham Accords, he came to believe that more. Uh, and did not really expect that within his own party, the Democrats, uh, who traditionally had been, who pushed presidents to be more pro-Israel, uh, as happened in the Obama administration when he was vice president, that the pressure would actually come more from the left and uh, he uh, would face uh, you know, pressure to be critical of Israel, uh, particularly when there were obvious uh, uh, violations of international law, such as in the expulsion of Palestinians and uh, the civilian casualties uh, in, in Gaza, I think he was taken aback. And I, I do think that um, his posture has been a throwback to a different era of democratic politics. Um, and he hasn't caught on to the profound changes that have taken place within his own party in the meanwhile. Now, I think they're kind of coming to grips with it a little bit more. Uh, and they certainly don't want another eruption that could jeopardize their agenda and distract them from important issues that they want to deal with. Uh, and so in that sense, um, the secretary's visit to the Middle East um, is, is important and, and helpful. And, and clearly the president's um, you know, um, uh, plan to help in the reconstruction of Gaza uh, is also helpful and important. But you know, think about the absurdity of it at the same time. That is that uh, we, the taxpayers, pay for the weapons that created the destruction. Uh, then the president is proposing to pay for reconstruction of that which was destroyed by the weapons we paid for. Um, it is kind of an absurd situation, but that's where we find ourselves. A question for the secretary in the meanwhile is, if the aim is simply to bring back quiet um, and prevent an eruption, which is a good in itself in some ways, um, then he's not going to succeed. He's not going to succeed because the conditions that gave rise to this, the unending occupation with no political horizon, uh, what's happening in Jerusalem uh, in terms of planned expulsions of Palestinians from their homes. Um, if those things are not addressed in a profound way, then I think they're going to face another eruption sooner or later. Let's get into some of what's happening in, to, in the region. Biden spoke with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas during the crisis, and uh, Biden has said that the U.S. will work with the Palestinian Authority bring reconstruction assistance to Gaza. But it was just a few weeks ago that Abbas pulled down the long-awaited Palestinian elections, as it appeared his support was much thinner than he expected, that his Fatah coalition was fractured, and that Hamas was better placed even in the West Bank than many had thought. Now, with Biden's focus on the PA, with his call to Abbas, is Abbas back in the game? And overall, do you think Hamas won or lost from this encounter? Well, let's first of all start with the, with the first um, uh, issue about why uh, Biden uh, is proposing to coordinate with the PA, not with Hamas. That's an obvious one, obviously, because there's no way he's going to coordinate with Hamas uh, that is now uh, considered by the U.S. a terrorist organization, and, and he would 
face a huge backlash and a fight in Congress um, over that. So uh, clearly, to the extent that he's going to coordinate, it's going to be with international organizations, the UN, which he says he's going to do anyway, uh, and the PA, uh, uh, you know, that, that obviously has been substantially weakened, as, as you pointed out. Whether or not um, that, you know, in itself is going to be effective, that is, whether the PA is able to carry it out, I think it's, this is more of a political exercise uh, to try to bring the PA into importance, um, given the fact that its legitimacy has eroded among Palestinians, and not only by the recent crisis, and it's irrelevant in the crisis, um, uh, but also because, as you pointed out, the, the postponement of the Palestinian elections in May after 15 years, um, and uh, they had been planned. And the worst part of this is not just that they postponed it, but they postponed it in a way while getting a yellow uh, light from the administration. Um, initially, uh, Mahmoud Abbas planned the election in January, just on the eve of, of Biden becoming president, assuming that a Democratic president is going to want this uh, legitimizing election that would shrinking him and enable uh, Biden to deal with him uh, more authoritatively. But the administration became worried about the results of the election. They became worried that Hamas could do better. Polls showed that Hamas could do well, but more importantly, that Fatah had fractured. And there were uh, over 30 uh, slates that registered for the Palestinian election. More than 90% of the Palestinians had registered uh, to vote, uh, indicating there was a lot of energy um, among desperate Palestinians who really didn't have uh, any political horizon uh, looming, and they thought maybe the election could at least restructure leadership in a way that could generate new energy. When it was postponed, this sapped energy, and yes, much of the anger went toward Mahmoud Abbas, uh, who is now being, uh, you know, it is an attempt to restore him uh, by the Biden administration. Uh, did um, Hamas win or lose? I mean, look, there is no winner in this. Uh, I mean, um, you know, look at the devastation, uh, the devastation of the Palestinians, devastations in Israel, again, asymmetrical, more, much more on the Palestinian side. But politically, they have gained. Um, I mean, we know that uh, despite all the siege, despite all the attacks, despite all the suffering of, of the Gazan people, Hamas, uh, according to the polls uh, before the May elect, uh, plan May election, uh, were doing pretty well. And they certainly, the, the very um, events, the very uh, violence that had erupted um, indicated that they've been able uh, to make more rockets uh, and even expand the range of the rockets and fire those rockets despite uh, very thick uh, uh, Israeli bombings. And, and so in a way, politically, they win. They, they're more relevant. They, they, um, uh, they seem to have reacted to a, uh, the crisis in Jerusalem. The Palestinians wanted someone to do something about and no one was doing anything about um, so in that sense, I think they're political winners for sure, uh, even though obviously Gaza is more devastated than before. Let's look at what's happening in Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu's prospects to stay in office seem, at least in the short term, to have been given a boost by this war with Hamas. How do you see the next few weeks in Israeli politics? 
And if you could please comment on the violence between Arab and Jewish Israelis in mixed cities. This seems to be something new. Yeah, I think let's start with the with the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, and his behavior. Now, look, I mean, most Israeli analysts, I mean, look at the newspapers and commentary, uh, see him as Trumpist in the sense that he's focused only on what's good for him politically, uh, much more than anything else in the game. And in this particular case, uh, whoever started the provocation of Palestinians, whether it was the far right uh, that is in a coalition with him or other groups, he clearly benefited from the escalation, uh, in, in part not only because he distracted from his legal troubles that he's facing now, corruption charges, uh, but also because he, pre he prevented the emergence of a government without him, which seemed looming and seemed imminent uh, with the support of an Arab party. Uh, that would uh, lend, that would uh, give it a majority in the Knesset, uh, and now with this escalation, it became impossible for both the right wing uh, parties within uh, the alternative coalition and for the Arab party uh, to join such a coalition, given their a different take on on uh, and sympathies on on the Israeli Palestinian uh, violence. And so, in that sense, he clearly. Um, uh, prevented for now the emergence of that government, uh, and B, he restored the possibility of uh, uh, forming a government, particularly as um, the party, Yamina, right-wing party that had uh, wanted to join the alternative coalition now seems to be uh, talking to him again. Uh, whether or not he'll succeed remains an open question, in part because he still will need some support for an Arab party or some splinter from some other party. Uh, and obviously right now with the accounting and interpreting the events in Israel, most people think that Israel failed in its uh, current, despite all of the, 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 the bombings and, and the destruction uh, in Gaza, that it had failed strategically to obtain its objectives. And, and in fact, many within the Israeli political mainstream accused Netanyahu of deliberately helping Hamas as a boogeyman uh, in order to not deal with Abu Mazen politically or make any concessions. So that um, uh, sort of uh, debate within Israel, that discourse within Israel is going to play itself out and the results are unpredictable. What about the violence in the mixed cities between Israel, yeah, Arabs I and Jews? I think this is really the biggest issue, Andrew, that you, you that that you're putting your finger on. And I say it's the biggest. It's not obviously the biggest issue. Is the over 50 years of occupation with no end in sight, and we know what Palestinians are going through uh, in that occupation. So that is clearly the main crisis. But on that, nothing has changed. Uh, not before, not after uh, this eruption of violence. Um, uh, uh, between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Uh, I think what has changed in a way that is unprecedented uh, is um, uh, Palestinian Israelis and Jews coming into confrontation across the country, including in cities where they have uh, relatively coexisted amicably despite the inequalities, including a place like the city of Haifa, um, and we have seen that on a scale that 
we have never witnessed since 1948. And I don't say that lightly. This is something really important. And there appears to have been some profound change. Not that uh, many Israelis, uh, whether they're Jews or Palestinian Israelis, don't want to try to avoid an eruption because they know the danger of that for their communities. But what is happening is that you have a now a trend, um, certainly among uh, the Jewish far right, which is provoking uh, Palestinians who deliberately want Palestinians expelled from Israel, and now a young Arabs who just don't want to go back uh, to the status quo of inequality and want to assert themselves in a, in a big way. And, and that is new, uh, and that is profound. And I think that is... Um, in some ways, the blurring of the boundaries um, between the Palestinians under occupation in the West Bank and Gaza and Palestinian Israelis, uh, the blurring of those boundaries has been the most important outcome of this crisis. President Biden expressed his gratitude to Egyptian President Abdul Fattah el-Sisi in helping to broker the ceasefire. Now, prior to May 10th, when this all began, it seemed that Sisi was on Biden's do not call list, along with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Do you see a turnaround in U.S.-Egypt relations following these events? I don't see a major turnaround. I do I do think that uh, this, is, this was not unexpected. Um, I think the Egyptians... Um, have the most contact and influence with Hamas in part because obviously they've controlled Gaza for many years after 1948 until Israel occupied them in 67. Uh, and um, they um, have obviously a border with Gaza and they limit uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, gateway to Gaza. And so they have tremendous influence uh, and they of course coordinate with the Israelis on security issues. So the Israelis listen to them on this issue. And I expected that they would be the ones to ultimately make the deal. Um, what's interesting here, though, I mean, of course, the Egyptians have a role and the U.S. now will have to work with them as it is uh, somewhat more focused on Israel-Palestine. But the important thing is this was not America's ceasefire. I mean, let's, let's be sure. I mean, I know Biden wants to uh, take credit for it. And politically, I think that's astute and he needs to because he needs to be strong to fulfill his other agenda. But let's face it, he didn't speak out earlier um, uh, when violations of human rights were already very clear um, in a way that weakened him and weakened his agenda and weakened his ability. Um, and when the ceasefire took place, whatever people say, both Israelis and Palestinians both Israelis and Hamas were ready for a ceasefire. Neither could win this militarily. The Israelis had pretty much exhausted their targets. Uh, Hamas made its political point and didn't want to see more damage. And the Egyptians were doing the negotiations. And uh, the fact that the president made a phone call uh, just before the day uh, the ceasefire uh, came into effect, uh, if in fact um, the president wants to take credit for that as the reason why a ceasefire took hold, then you got to raise the question is why didn't he do it a week earlier? Um, if he could do it by a phone call, why didn't he do it a few days earlier? And that really tells you the story. What role do you think the Abraham Accords and the Abraham Accord countries, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan, and I guess 
we're actually talking about the UAE in particular, can play at this point with regard to a regional diplomatic effort? And do you see a regional diplomatic effort coming as a result of what's happened this month? Look, um, I mean, there's no question that the Abraham Accords gave the impression that the Palestine issue was no longer important. And, and that turned out to be wrong, and not only for the Palestinians for sure, but even in terms of galvanizing our public support across the Middle East. Um, it did withstand the crisis, that is the Abraham Accord, uh, uh, did withstand the crisis. No one really stopped relations with Israel and the continuing relations with Israel. Uh, but I always uh, was of the belief that um, those accords were done not for Palestine. They were done for the individual interest of those countries, the UAE, Bahrain, uh, the Sudan, uh, uh, the, uh, Morocco. They're all doing it because they got things for themselves in that deal. And that whatever little they can do to kind of try to help with peace uh, is overwhelmed by this sense that the, uh, they took away much uh, of the leverage uh, that was that could have been employed on behalf of the Palestinians in negotiating it a, a better deal. Uh, so uh, whatever role they play, and they can obviously play a mild role here and there, uh, they are not in a position uh, to uh, structurally affect and influence the huge asymmetry of power between Israel and Palestinians that is enabled by huge American support to Israel that has never ceased. Uh, and there is nothing that they're going to be able to bring to bear in this environment, given their peace with Israel, uh, that is going to help the Palestinian in an effective way. I know you've written on this. We've done reporting on the trend among progressive Democrats to be more critical of US relations and arms sales to Israel. How do you see this trend playing out and the impact it, it may or may not have on U.S. policy toward Israel and the region for this administration and also beyond? And, and in your answer, if you could reflect on whether you think this trend is connected to the social justice uh, movements and awareness in the United States like Black Lives Matter, there's a front page article in The Washington Post today about that relationship. Would you agree that there's a connection there? Well, as you know, uh, Andrew, I have been doing uh, public opinion polls uh, on this issue in the United States for three decades. Um, and I've been, the past decade, I've been tracing a major shift in democratic public opinion that is far more critical of Israel than elected officials. And I wondered in an article in the Washington Post seven years ago, whether that gap between the democratic public and elected officials is sustainable over time. Uh, and it is wrong to only speak of progressives. I think this is kind of a way of marginalizing this um, energy in the democratic party by calling it progressive as if it's limited to a subset of the democratic party. Um, put aside my polls for a minute. 53% um, in a recent Gallup poll said Democrats overall, majority of Democrats, slight majority of Democrats, um, said they want to see more pressure on Israel applied uh, to advance peace. Um, in our polling, uh, there is no question that a majority of Democrats wanted to even impose sanctions 
and more serious measures over Israeli settlements, something that no one, uh, very few in Congress, uh, even among progressives, um, had um, uh, made a point of until uh, recently. So there is a huge uh, dynamic taking place uh, that is traceable beyond the Trump era and beyond uh, the, our coming to grips with our own uh, you know, uh, 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 racial injustice and, and structural discrimination in our own country. But I would say that in the Trump era, that had been expanded dramatically. There are two reasons for it. One reason is Trump himself, because I think uh, Trump was the antithesis of what Democrats uh, stand for to this day, and his embrace of Israel, as well as uh, the prime minister embrace of of him, the evangelicals and the, and the Republicans and the evangelical right, I should say, um, that that has put them on the other side of where Democrats are in terms of values, uh, rule of law, democracy, human rights. No question that that placed the Israeli right wing government in, in that uh, perspective. And yes, I think with the focus on uh, racial justice and structural discrimination and and, and police violence. Um, I think the 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 Israeli Palestinian issue is increasingly th seen through the prism of civil rights um, much more than through the prism of a traditional uh, a conflict and and an occupation. Uh, and in that sense, that is a transformation. Uh, that has taken place. Um, and it is also, you can see it in uh, some of the commentary as well as the think tank reports like the Carnegie Report, which um, is focused more on rights-based approach uh, of equal rights for, uh, for Israelis and Palestinians. And remarkably, uh, it is something that the Biden administration for the first time started putting out, um, calling for equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians, uh, something that was notable about uh, President Biden's comments following the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Um, but they have not articulated what that means. Uh, but they'll, now, if they stick with that language, there will be further pressure on them to elaborate as to what those equal rights mean in light of Israeli actions in the occupied territories. We started by talking about whether the Israeli-Palestinian issue is back as the central issue in U.S. policy in the region. There are currently negotiations that have been ongoing for many weeks now in Vienna on um, with Iran or with the EU and, and indirectly with Iran about the nuclear deal. Um, how do you see that relationship between U.S. policy toward Iran, which supports Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza, and what the administration is trying to do in the Israeli-Palestinian issue? Look, the uh, Biden administration of prioritizing the Iran deal is not wrong. Uh, it is the one issue that, as Obama had discovered, and which is why he made it a priority, that could, that could draw the US into, into direct conflict and war in the Middle East, more than the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Uh, so in a way that remains a priority. It had impacted the way 
they framed Israel-Palestine. As I said, I think given the fact that you have Israeli opposition to return to the JCPOA, um, there is a sense in the Biden administration that they don't want to open another front with the Israeli government, um, and therefore with some members of Congress um, who might be supportive of the Israeli posture. Uh, and they know that Democrats on this issue are divided and were even under Obama, remember there were some leading Democrats who opposed the Iran nuclear deal, including Senator Schumer, uh, the, the, leader, the Senate leader, uh, the, uh, the Democrats um, leader in Congress. So um, I think they, they definitely now have to find a way to get that out quickly. Um, there are a lot of people who understood that they shouldn't wait on this issue because the more they waited, uh, the more people are going to try to undermine it, other crises might uh, preempt it. Uh, and I think they took a little bit too long uh, to address this issue. And now I think the pressure on them is to try to conclude it as soon as possible. Uh, and if they don't, I think they're going to continue to be far more reserved on Israel-Palestine until they get this issue behind them. Shibley, looking out at uh, the Middle East with the Biden administration initiative in Iran, what's what's happened in terms of uh, Israel, Gaza, the West Bank. Um, there's also, you know, a, a peace initiative that the administration has tried to, to broker over Yemen. When you look two, three years out, do you think that we will be in a better place with regard to Israeli-Palestinian issues in the region more broadly? Are you optimistic or pessimistic at this point? Um, well, I, I, I don't want to frame it that way. Let me just uh, put it differently. Um, uh, a, a colleague of mine, uh, Mark Clinch, and I uh, did a poll among uh, scholars uh, of the Middle East. Those are members of the American Political Science Association and members of MESA who specialize in the Middle East. And we asked them a number of questions, including about U.S. influence. And uh, there, there is no question that uh, most people think uh, U.S. influence in the Middle East has eroded over uh, the past decade and likely to erode and certainly not improve over um, the next decade. I think that's generally right. Um, uh, I think the United States, by and large, is less interested in the Middle East, um, not, uh, I think, wouldn't, couldn't pull out um, uh, for a lot of reasons that I could articulate. Uh, but nonetheless, um, the issues on the table right now for the U.S., uh, whether it's uh, our own domestic issues, uh, even beyond the pandemic, the economy, the racial justice, um, uh, the infrastructure, uh, competition with China on the global uh, uh, scale uh, uh, are all going to be critically important for this administration, uh, for the remainder of the administration. Israel-Palestine is unlikely to be a top priority in a way that is meaningful, and the Middle East broadly is not. The problem for the U.S., though, is that this idea that you can pull out of the Middle East uh, or you can just be passive or, or you can ignore it it's just impossible because of the built-in entanglement of the United States with Israel. I mean, we really don't always come to grips with that. Uh, you know, the, the Israeli behavior is enabled by American support. And I'm not just speaking of the nearly $4 billion a year 
um, that uh, Israel gets from the U.S. Uh, over time since uh, the end of World War II. It's the largest uh, uh, sum going to any country in the world. But there are three other things uh, where we are entangled in uh, Israeli behavior. Uh, one is shielding Israel at the United Nations against resolutions that could have helped push Israel to end its occupation, giving Israel the qualitative edge militarily, uniquely so, uh, uh, technology that we don't give to anyone else in order to maintain its military superiority and the asymmetry of power that now exists in the region. And then working closely to use our clout and incentive and money and backing and deals um, to get Arab states to make peace with Israel uh, without necessarily making uh, Israel compromise on the issue of Palestine. Those are things that make the U.S. directly complicit in what happens anytime uh, in the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians or Israel and its neighbors. And therefore, the U.S. cannot extricate itself. And there is American passivity uh, means uh, still that the U.S. would be complicit. Uh, in fact, if it really does not play a role to address uh, the issues that are enabled by this American support. So the, the thought that um, um, this withdrawal from the Middle East could take place without disentanglement from this support for Israel is just uh, not, a, a, not, not something that's realistic. Shibli Tohami, thank you for sharing your comments and analysis with us today on, on the Middle East. My pleasure. We will return after this break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Thanks again to our guest, Shibli Tohami, for joining us today and to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. And of course, to all of you for listening. We will return next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.